Well, over the last three episodes, we've worked to define biblical counseling theory by way of two concrete and specific ideas. Sin habits cause the onset of symptoms indicative of psychological disorders, and repentance brings about therapeutic gains. Because biblical counseling theory is often discussed in terms of what it's not, or in correspondingly vague terms of what it is, a need arises to define the terms and concepts in an objective fashion so that a conversation can actually be had. In other words, it can be difficult to evaluate biblical counseling on the basis of biblical teaching if the foundational suppositions of the theory aren't forthrightly stated. Now, that said, it's only fair and I think important uh, to note that the summary statements that I've made over the last three episodes in terms of the foundational suppositions of biblical counseling theory may not stand as statements with which the individuals who endorse this hypothesis actually agree. Uh, in other words, I neither represent nor speak for the biblical counseling movement. Several years ago, when the psychohomardiological theory of symptomediology was published in the Journal of Psychology and Christianity, I sent the paper to uh, a few biblical counselors, including Dr. Heath Lambert, one of the foremost voices for biblical counseling theory today, hoping to have an open and an honest discussion about my concerns. I'm still a little bit surprised, to be honest with you, that no one ever responded to me. Now, I may come across, I suppose, to, to someone who's not met me before as a little uh, intellectually aggressive or uh, disinterested in an honest dialogue, but the truth is, I think, I'm a pretty easy guy to get along with, a, you know, a real dude like anybody else. And I was once a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And it was there, I guess, that I really encountered uh, biblical counseling for the first time. Maybe not the idea uh, of biblical counseling, but I think the people who really do it. I had uh, moved uh, to campus from the East Coast to continue my studies there and was staying in the basement of one of the buildings, you know, with a few other guys. And, guy, you know, guys will hang out. And uh, this one gentleman uh, noticed that I was leaving in the mornings with a bow tie and coming back in the later afternoons and asked, you know, hey, what do you do? I said, I'm a therapist. I, I think he said something like, oh, you do biblical counseling or whatever. Um, oh, no, I said, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I work with OCD. I think he pretended to be, uh, you know, interested, you know, for some period of time. But the next thing I can really recall is that guys from all over this, you know, fairly large room, six or seven bunk beds in it, were, were jumping in to debate me on, on so-called secular psychology. Uh, here I was a little bit ill-prepared uh, for such a discussion, not knowing a great deal at the time about biblical counseling theory, and, uh, and now uh, debating a room full of people on, uh, on biblical counseling. Like, welcome to Southern. Over the next three years, I became increasingly interested in biblical counseling in a Salem witch trials kind of way. Uh, I knew that what I was doing, that is what I had been trained to do by the psychological community as an evidence-based protocol, was working. It was facilitating real and, and meaningful results. People were traveling from long distances and even in some cases flying from other countries uh, for OCD treatment. And we would do uh, intensive outpatient programs uh, and get them better in like two weeks, like crazy, like crazy fast. In graduate school, I didn't learn anything about exposure and ritual prevention, but here I was learning about it and doing it, and the results were shocking to me. 
But then I would read about biblical counseling with all of this kind of condescending language about so-called secular psychology. And it was like, well, what are you guys doing? And it was this united front of sin is the problem. But that's not what I was seeing in real time in session, you know, case after case all day long. We weren't talking about sin issues, right? We weren't talking about spiritual matters even. And I think that there can be this sense in which as a Christian, you don't want to say that biblical counseling is a bunch of balderdash, you know, because it can feel like if you attack biblical counseling, uh, if you say that biblical counseling uh, isn't true, then you're, you're kind of also saying that the Bible isn't true. And again, as a Christian, I don't want to say that, right? I love the scriptures and I'm passionate about the Bible. I just vehemently disagree that the scriptures teach biblical counseling theory. Like, I'm sorry, I just don't see that like anywhere in the Bible. I don't need to read another biblical counseling book in order to understand the proposed idea. I get it. I just don't see the Bible endorsing sin habits as the decisive ideology of psychological illnesses or repentance as the replicable and observable cause of their relief. Thus, my point is that rejecting biblical counseling theory is not tantamount to rejecting the authority of Scripture. Uh, one can have good, uh, conservative, biblical theology and yet reject biblical counseling theory. And I think that's one of the, the things I find so backwardly intriguing about the biblical counseling movement. You know, it's bad uh, theology, in my opinion, endorsed by Christian circles that typically hold uh, really biblically orthodox views. In a chapter entitled The History and General Principles of Pastoral Care, in Richard Spahn's uh, 1951 book, uh, Pastoral Care, Charles Kemp wrote the words, This is the great glory of the pastoral ministry, to relieve the sufferings and anxieties, to face the problems, frustrations, and disappointments, to be responsive in order to draw out the best of all entrusted to his care, page 11. If we think about Kemp's words, for even a moment, they immediately feel crooked. Uh, it may not be obvious what's wrong with them, but for many of us, there's a, a lingering sense that they misarticulate in some way the true function of the pastoral ministry, beyond the fact that Kemp speaks of the glory of the pastoral ministry as opposed to the glory of Christ and his God, uh, Kemp implies that the height of the pastor's work is making known uh, the, the best or even the glory of people. Now, let me ask you a question. If to pastor people is to relieve their anxieties and in so doing to bring out the best in them, then how are modern pastors different from life coaches, say, for example, or self-help books? Why would one need a pastor if he or she has a competent therapist or a good physician? You follow what I'm saying? If, if there really isn't a difference in aim between Kemp's pastoral ministry and modern medicine or psychological theory, then what function does a pastor actually serve anymore? This is part of the problem that I have with Steve Byer's words in Counseling the Heart Cases. Uh, he speaks of, of Brian's therapeutic progress as the finished work of Christ, page 78. The completed work of Christ is a Brian without clinically significant symptoms? 
on that basis, how do we meaningfully distinguish between repentant Christians and mere non-symptomatic atheists? Not a rhetorical question. If sins cause sickness and repentance brings about therapeutic gains, then uh, one of the places this phenomenon should be most apparent uh, and most easily provable uh, is in the non-Christian community. Everybody ought to be suffering from psychological illnesses of some kind. And even more to the point, contrarily, we should see a a Christ-believing community with no psychological problems. Then again, if that's the case, then on what basis are we sitting here uh, talking about biblical counseling theory to start with. You know, I imagine that six or seven or or eight uh, out of every 10 people who consume biblical counseling services are already uh, church-going and repentant Christians. So why are they presenting uh, for counseling services and presenting with uh, symptoms uh, to begin with? Now, a bizarre shift necessarily seems to happen uh, in our portrayal of the gospel when we make it fundamentally about the relief of human suffering. A few episodes ago, I asked you, uh, what do uh, Christ and his gospel and psychological counseling, as such is defined in modern language, have in common? Again, not a rhetorical question. Think about that a shameful uh, diminution of both the ramification of sin and the beauty of the gospel necessarily take place when we start to think of the completed work of Christ as a reduced score on a psychometric test. Because coupling sin and symptom presentation with the gospel and psychological health is an implicit coupling of psychopathology and divine judgment. So, Any Christian who suffers from any psychological problem is a Christian about whom Jesus apparently wasn't talking when he declared that it is finished. The gospel is either about sin and eternal salvation or about symptoms and therapeutic progress. But based upon sound biblical teaching alone, it can't be about both. And I've long said that you can't separate the good news from the bad news. To try to tease the two apart biblically is to misunderstand both. But that's exactly what many of our churches generally do. They neglect the bad news such that the good news is distorted into one form or another of self-actualization. The extent to which the bad news is discarded, though, as unpopular or outdated uh, in whatever way is the same extent to which the good news is irrelevant to our souls. There's beauty and freedom and joy that begins at the revelation of the horror of our sin. The good news is rooted in the bad news. But for many of us, you know, we want to think that now that I've got Jesus, I'm better. You know, I'm like I'm a better person or whatever. Like Jesus is the ultimate psychotropic medication. If I'm screwed up, I just, I need more Jesus. You know, up my dose, Pastor Jim. And that's where the biblical counseling movement gets this so wrong. It presents the gospel as the great therapeutic exchange. You know, if you believe in Jesus hard enough, or if you repent good enough, then your psychological illness will evaporate, or as Virus says, it will change naturally. You know, it's like a, a psychological form of the prosperity gospel. I hope you'll join me next time as we consider further the implications of a homardiologically oriented psychology. Thanks for tuning in to The Biblical Beef.